Well, just wanted to formally welcome you all to the Act Like Men conference. So we're so glad you've joined us here at Grace Church. We're thankful to finally have our opportunity to serve all of you. Uh, we've been preparing for that for a long time. That day's finally arrived. So thank you for coming. It's great to see you all. My name's Travis Allen. I'm one of the uh, I'm the teaching elder here at, and one of the elders here at Grace Church, one of the speakers at the conference. I'm also going to be the conference MC, which means I'll be up here from time to time giving announcements, giving you some directions. And I'm also going to, before the two sessions tomorrow, introduce the two speakers, Ron Frasco first, and then uh, Russ Brewer will have the second session. So I'll introduce those guys tomorrow. I want to tell you kind of what we're thinking, what we have in mind as we kind of organize this. We just want to promote good fellowship among Christian men. That's what we're here for, just to... Uh, create relationships, establish relationships, build those relationships over the time, the next year, years to come, whatever the Lord gives us, open up lines of communication that we can continue. It's so important, especially in the times that we're living in. I know you all see it. Uh, the world is changing, gents. It's changing rapidly. You've probably, most of us are old enough to, to think this way now. We're not living in the same country into which we were born. Um, I know you all feel that as well. We've all seen the spiritual strategy as well that's uh, taken the heart out of the fight with men. Satan has targeted the men, and he's targeted the men for a long, long time in this country. He's elevated their pride. He's eroded their conviction. He's compromised their integrity. Then marginalized men to the peripheral edges of the family and the culture, just kicking them out altogether. Pretty smart tactic, isn't it? Pretty smart strategy. It's a military tactic called a decapitation strike. If you take out the leaders, the troops are totally without direction, totally without instruction, without confidence, and after that it's just easy pickings. You just pick them off one by one. So while it's helpful to understand what happened, it doesn't do us any good to dwell on the past. We're here not to look back, but to look forward. We're looking forward to what God wants to do among us, especially here in this region. We're here to prepare a new generation of men to confront challenges of the future because that's what men do. They face challenges, they embrace the conflict, they move ahead, and as they do that, they lead others as they go. So we're gonna look ahead, and we're gonna look ahead by looking back. Uh, put our eyes again before God's word. We're gonna look at what is God, God has revealed in his word, and I'm reminded as I think about this conference, I'm reminded of something that happened in Josiah's day. Josiah's day in Judah was similar to ours in many ways. Josiah was just an eight-year-old boy when he became king of Judah, as you guys know the story. But he was surrounded by good men. He was surrounded by godly counselors, men who raised him to know the God of his fathers, men who instructed his mind pointed his feet in the right direction and got him going. First of Josiah's reforms was a spiritual reform, and it was preparing the temple for worship. He went to set about to repairing the dilapidated temple of Yahweh. And while that work was underway, they made a very important discovery as they went through the temple. It says in 2 Kings 22, verse 8 and following, it says, Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, 
your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord, delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Whenever a culture any culture, departs from God's word, it's under wrath immediately. And that's the pattern in our own country, in this time as well. We can all see it clearly. We've been living through the pattern that's been prescribed and predicted, described in Romans 1, 18 to 32. So what are we going to do about that? Again, Josiah sets an example for us in the very next chapter, 2 Kings 23, 1 to 3, the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that are written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Gentlemen, that's what we're here to do as well. We want to build fellowship with men of like mind, of like heart, of deep conviction, of humility, before the book, so that we all gather around sound Bible teaching and the words of our God. It's not going to get better in this country, it's going to get worse. And we need to prepare ourselves, our families, our churches. And if we'll do that, I am convinced that the Lord will give us success. While the sky may be falling all around us throughout this land of Egypt, for those who live in the safe haven of Goshen, under the blessing of Almighty God, the church of Jesus Christ will prosper. No doubt about it. Bad times in society at large can be good times for the gospel because it's against the darkness of a very, very dark culture that the gospel shines most brightly. Amen? So that's what we're trying to do here in this region. Getting us all together here for this weekend, we want to build like-minded friendships, we want to build biblical partnerships. We want to get ourselves equipped and strong so we can be courageous for whatever the future holds, however dark it may be. If we'll invest ourselves now in the church of Jesus Christ, he promised gates of hell will not prevail against us. Sound words, sound promise from our Lord, isn't it? We've got a couple more things to announce, but let's stop for a moment, bow our heads and commit this weekend to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you, coming before the book, we do want to humble our hearts, bow our heads before you, just acknowledging even in our posture that we are submissive to your word.
We want your word to penetrate. We want your word to convict. We want your word to confront. Because we realize, though we may not have to answer for all the sins of the past in our own hearts and lives, we are people of this culture. Like Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Heavenly Father, we come before you like Isaiah, knowing that we have been unclean, knowing that we need to be purified from our sins and have them all forgiven and we do come on that basis, on the basis of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's he who has sacrificed himself for us And it's he who's lived a perfect life of righteous obedience to you, to your law. And he covers us with that as a garment, as a free gift. We come before you with our hearts wide open, ready for you to do your work. So please, make us men who are pleasing to you as we lead and guide, as we provide and protect, as we instruct and teach. Help us to be your tools for the future. We love you, we give ourselves to you and ask that you bless us in this conference. Help us to honor your word and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. I wanna say uh, just a quick word of thanks, acknowledgement to two very generous organizations who have served you without even, without even knowing you. Uh, first of all, is Lewis and Roth Publishers. They publish all of Alex Strock's books and others as well. Excellent, excellent author, Alex Strock, Alexander Strock. Um, and they generously donated one of the titles you're going to receive uh, tomorrow afternoon. It's called, it's this book here, it's called If You Bite and Devour One Another. Um, we want you to read this now, actually. Don't bite and devour each other here. No, I'm just kidding. You can wait. Uh, but it's an excellent book on embracing handling conflict in a biblical way, okay? So we're gonna give you a copy of this and thank you to Alex Strock and to Lewis and Roth Publishers. They've done us a great service. Also, John MacArthur's Media Ministry, Grace to You, has also allowed us to provide you with another title that you'll receive tomorrow. The book is called The Jesus You Can't Ignore. And that points us to our Lord and Savior as the pattern for biblical manhood. You can't talk about acting like men without talking about Christ himself. Again, this provides us with very, very helpful instruction. As we watch our Lord handle conflict and controversy throughout the life of his ministry, and that dogged his steps from every, at every single turn. Gents, if you're gonna hold fast to scripture, like Jesus, you also will be persecuted. He promised us that, didn't he? So this is a very helpful, very timely book. So again, a thank you to John MacArthur, to Grace to you for that. But in a few minutes, uh, we're going to continue here. Moses Estrada, he's the pastor of Hill Rose Community Church out in Hill Rose, Colorado, about an hour and a half, hour and a half to the east. He's going to come up and read scripture and pray for us. But before he does that, Adam and his team are going to come up and um, they're going to lead us in a couple hymns. It's one of the joys of a conference like this that we get to experience is singing together. And with the exception of Alyssa over here, male voices. Love to have male voices. Nothing quite like a chorus of strong male voices who get this are singing loudly, okay? We need you guys to fill this room with the lyrics of these great hymns we're gonna sing. So make sure you sing heartily, robustly as unto the Lord, okay? Adam, lead us. I have the privilege this evening to
read God's word with you, and I know you just sat down, but um, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm, Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1, and stand with me as we read God's word, Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, follow with me as I read God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. O oh, Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are the faithful, true, holy, and righteous God. There is none like you. And yet you are clothed with grace and mercy. We are sinful, fallen creatures, unworthy of your divine favor. Often we, we walk in the counsel of the wicked. Sometimes we are tempted and stand in the way of sinners. Even find ourselves in sitting in the seat of scoffers. Yet in your sovereign plan, you sent your precious beloved son to do what Adam failed to do. It is he and he alone who fulfilled your law perfectly. It is Christ and Christ alone who shed his blood in our place. It is he alone who redeemed us from our hopeless state, apart which we would remain and perish and meet your just demand and righteous indignation in hell forever. You, O Holy Father, clothed us with the righteousness of Christ by faith. You sealed us with your Holy Spirit. You, you gave us your word, and you made us part of your family, in which we stand even now in the company of the redeemed. The band of brothers that you have assembled here this evening, Lord, such grace, such mercy overfills us with gratitude. And so we ask this evening in this conference time, O oh Lord, that you would help us now to delight in your word as it is exhorting us to become the men that you've called us to be through Genesis. Lord, you have not left us to ourselves to figure this out. You have left us your blueprint, your roadmap that we might follow and become the men in which Christ saved us to be. Help us to delight in that so that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and seek to apply your truths to our lives. Grant that we would become the men whom you have called us to be and that we would refuse to conform to what this culture says a man should be. May we be men of your word, men who meditate upon it day and night, that we would be like trees planted by the streams of water with deep roots, strong roots, that are anchored upon your truth, your word. 
which, which in turn yields its fruit in season and out of season and our leaves do not wither no matter where the culture is, no matter even those who would proclaim the name of Christ follows. Lord, may we stand with you and you alone. Father, produce fruit that is consistent in us. Produce fruit that is consistent in us with our high calling that we have been called by Christ so that all may see our good works which you have helped produce in us as we obey your word. Oh, Father, may all see those good works beginning with our family, with our church, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. And as a result, Lord, they may glorify you, O oh Father, in heaven. Father, may you be honored now as we give attention to your word so that we might reflect it in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn our attention to our subject for this evening, we want to ask and answer a very fundamental question here in our first session. What is manhood? If there's ever been a time in our nation's history we've lacked clarity about that question, that we've groped in the darkness to find an answer, it's now. Paul commanded the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That command... Act like men, it's one word in the Greek language. It's the word andridzomai, emphasizing maleness, manliness, qualities that are specific to the male gender. For every new generation of Christian young men, that text is becoming increasingly foreign and remote. Just to illustrate that, I recently read an article that appeared in the New York Times last month. You can imagine what I found. In the article, it was titled, 27 Ways to Be a Modern Man. Thought I'd try some of these out with you. 27 Ways to Be a Modern Man. The author's name is Brian Lombardi. He tries to help men navigate the modern age with this list of tips. And as I read the first one, I wonder how helpful he'll be for us. See what you think. Quote, when the modern man buys shoes for his spouse, he doesn't have to ask her sister for the size. And he knows which brands run big or small. Don't know about you, but that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> I don't even know my own shoe size. Number 17, tip number 17 says this. Does the modern man have a melon baller? What do you think? How else would the cantaloupe, watermelon, and honeydew he serves be so uniformly shaped? So far, we got the modern man focused on shopping and carving out uniformly shaped melon balls. Modern man is sounding quite domesticated. Here's one you'll like. Number 25, tip number 25, the modern man has no use for a gun. He doesn't even own one, and he never will. You guys okay with that? There's a good Second Amendment response. <laughs> so not only, not only is he domesticated, now he's disarmed, <laughs> defanged. He's unable to protect. Next, number 26. The modern man cries. 
he cries often. Well, that's true. I shed a tear every time I see a punishing tackle. Nothing quite like the beauty of a skillful, well-executed, well-timed hit. Just brings a tear to the eye, doesn't it? Final way to be a modern man, tip number 27. People aren't sure if the modern man is a good dancer or not. That is, until the DJ plays his jam and he goes out there and puts on a clinic. Okay, it's not just my Baptist roots, but it is my Baptist roots, but it's also the fact that I'm big and clumsy. Never be a good dancer. Probably a number of us who don't have what it takes to be a modern man, we're just not gonna make the cut. But in all seriousness, today's gender bending has left the modern man absolutely confused about genuine manhood. I don't know Brian Lombardi, but you can hear it in that article, that kind of confusion. The modern man is flailing at best, and he's making stuff up. He's trying to redefine masculinity. He's trying to find some anchor on which to to have a sound foundation from which to build and grow his life. But it turns out he's informed by the culture around him. He seems to be trying to be more like a woman than a man. Lest I be misunderstood, it's not that there's anything wrong with buying shoes for your wife. It's not that there's anything wrong with using a melon baller. But the question is, what is true manhood all about? I mean, apart from the gender assigned to us by our creator at conception, what is it that makes a man manly? As a culture, we've been descending down the Romans 1 path of depravity and de degradation for the last century. Every, every step downward is just another painful reminder that our nation is indeed under divine judgment. You look at Romans 1, 18 and following, suppressing the truth, check, Ignoring the obvious conclusion of general revelation about the nature and character of God? Check. That's ignored. Embracing evolutionary myths? Check. Exchanging the glory of God for the glory of man? Check. That's been apparent since the Scopes trial in 1925. A century and more of marching away from God. And so, Romans 1.24, God gave us over to sexual immorality, giving them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The American pension for all things sexually immoral is known worldwide. It's been exported by Hollywood. As sexual sin has become more widespread, serial fornication and adultery, pornography, the embrace of every kind of deviancy, Divorce has not only destroyed marriages and homes, it's absolutely ruined children. Kids don't know what men and women are supposed to look like in the home. Young boys look up to fathers who are either silent and passive or else loud and tyrannical. Total confusion has taken over, which has been reflected in the portrayal of manhood, even on something as common as television. Worldly versions of Manliness are everywhere, but biblical manhood has always been hard to find. doesn't matter what generation you live in. Post-war portrayals of manhood has provided two basic options. On the one hand, there was the silent but push me too far and I'll shoot you version of manhood that's always been portrayed by John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, characters like that. On the other hand, 
you see loud, abrasive, foolish fathers, like characters like Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners or Archie Bunker or even Al Bundy. Those kinds of men, up to and including the World War II generation, they provided for their families, and they were tough. They protected them from harm, but they didn't do so well at teaching. They, what they lived out, they lived out inconsistently at best. They were happy to tell their children the what, pass on an inherited morality, a list of ethics and rules, but they failed to teach the why behind the what. Add to that either the passivity or the volatility. Add to that either the lack of leadership or complete tyrannical leadership. And then add to that the instances of moral hypocrisy that children were raised seeing in the home. It's no wonder children of the 60s and 70s indulged in the sins of their fathers, but in public. What had been hidden in back rooms in the 30s, 40s, 50s, the hippie generation flaunted in the streets. Now we're living with the consequences of all that, which is Romans 1, 26 to 28, God giving them over to homosexuality and a debased mind, final stages of divine judgment. We are absolutely drowning in sin in this country. So many competing versions of manhood today, and each one is just a different degree of totally lost. Boys growing up today have no idea what manhood is all about, no idea what to look for in a father, and when they get their own sons, their own daughters, no idea what they're doing. And as I said, that's reflected in popular media, particularly, particularly in the sitcoms, situation comedies. Alexis Madrigal, writing in The Atlantic, expresses his dismay in an article entitled Dads on Sitcoms. And he writes this. As a new dad, I've often been struck with horror at the dads I see on TV. On the small screen, dads are dolts. Dads are idiots. And while it may seem harmless to get a few cheap laughs at dad's expense, these characters and their hilarious incompetence form the cultural backdrop for our society's larger discussion about the roles fathers play in families. The path from Homer Simpson wringing Bart Simpson's neck, his main parental action, to our country's miserable paternity leave rules might be more direct than we think. And he quotes somebody. He says on TV, or Hannah Rosen, he's quoting, on TV, if there's a dad in the home, he's an idiot. It must have, must have reflected on our own discomfort with dads being, in, being competent, said Hannah Rosen on a panel about the future of fatherhood at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Probably not a, good, a lot of good ideas coming out of that festival, but she says, you put a dad in front of his kid and the dad gives the worst advice. You put a dad in front of the toaster and he burns the house down. She's just talking about what's on TV. While Mr. Madrigal rightly identifies the disrespectful cultural portrayals of dads, he then goes from there to immediately veer off course yet again. He believes that the solution is to provide paternity leave policies so fathers can have more time with their kids. He wants sitcoms and movies to provide better messaging to change the cultural perception of fatherhood. Now, no doubt about it, Media is a powerful medium, but that's no solution. That's no way forward. That's just another turn downward. We're not going to find any answers about genuine manhood 
from Mr. Madrigal, Brian Lombardi, or anyone else in this culture. It's time for us to go back to the designer and to ask him what he had in mind when he created men to be men. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. should be easy to find. It's right there in the front. But we need to go back to the beginning and get a good look at God's original design. If you will, the blueprint of manhood. We're going to find out what God intended men to be and to do. If anyone, if anyone in the universe can show us what makes men manly, it is the architect of manhood, right? There's another Lombardi, probably no relation to the author of that New York, New York Times article, but this guy is old school. He's famous for articulating a pretty helpful approach to coaching. It's called, go back to the basics, master the fundamentals. When Vince Lombardi became the head coach of the abysmal Green Bay Packers football team, they had, in the 1958 season, one win, 10 losses. He walked in to the room, first day, preseason, 1959, holding a football in his hand, and he looked across a room of really shame-faced football players. All of them talented, all of them gifted, but all of them lost. They knew they'd failed. They knew they had no clue how to put together a winning season. And as Lombardi looked around, let several moments of silence pass, he held the pigskin out in front of him and he spoke that iconic sentence, gentlemen, this is a football. With those five words, he drove home his point and turned that team around. His message was simple. Get back to the basics, focus on the fundamentals, master the fundamentals. That's the mentality that took that team to three NFL championships and two Super Bowls. And we now hand out the Vince Lombardi trophy for the winner of the Super Bowl. In the words of Coach Lombardi, gentlemen, this is biblical manhood. Let's stop looking around us. We're not going to find the answers out there. Let's get back to God's word. Back to the basics of biblical manhood and master those fundamentals. If you're in Genesis 1, take a look at verses 26 to 27. I've got an outline for this evening, very simple outline. If you're taking notes, here's the first point we're going to look at just briefly. It's this point. Number one, God made men and women to be equal. God made men and women to be equal. We start with the understanding that God made mankind and he made them male and female. Look at Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That gender binary represents the only two options that are available, male and female, nothing in between. No transgenders here. Hardwired into our genetic design, the XY chromosomes make a male human and the XX chromosome makes a female human. Seems ridiculous, I know that I have to say that publicly, but we live in ridiculous times, don't we? Moving on. Notice in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and 
Let them rule. Man, singular, is made in the image of God. But then God uses the plural when he speaks of co-regency, co-dominion, ruling together over the created world. This verse presents that first couple as co-equals. And in verse 27, we see God distinguish them. God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. Both persons are image bearers of God. Each one is capable of representing God's communicable attributes, that is, his righteousness, patience, love, etc. They were created to reflect his glory in that way. And not only that, but each one had the rational ability to know and understand and learn and apprehend God's incommunicable attributes as well. They could understand his self-existence. They could understand his immutability, his infinity, his eternity, his omniscience, all the omnis, omnipresence, omnipotence. As image bearers, they possessed rationality. They possessed an ability to learn, ability to understand, apprehend truth, comprehend concepts, and they were able to communicate it to others. Bearing God's communicable attributes apprehending the greatness of his incommunicable attributes, men and women together share the intellectual and emotional capacity to worship God in all of his glory and all of his splendor. They're co-equal as image bearers of God. And together, God assigned them a task. Look at verse 28. God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over fish, birds, every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay? Men and women, not only equal by virtue of being image bearers, they are also equal in their God-given task to exercise joint dominion over the whole earth. They're to rule together as co-regents over all creation. They're to rule together exercising a delegated authority that comes from God Almighty. Obviously, Cooperation is here implied, along with mutual respect, mutual appreciation. Men and women here are co-equals in every way, but they're also different. God made them male and female. And that signals an initial clue, which signals a difference in role, a difference in function. He didn't want them to be exactly the same. Living as image bearers of God would not look the same. Ruling as co-regents would not be conducted in exactly the same way. And that's what we see when we turn the page to Genesis 2.4. Genesis 2.4. Go ahead there. Brings us to a second point in our outline. God made men and women to be equal, but also, number two, God made men to lead. God made men to lead. That opening chapter in Genesis Summarized the first week of existence, the first week of creation. Comprehended the entirety of God's creative activity. And then we get to Genesis 2, 3. It says God rested from all the work that he had done. Doesn't mean he was tired. It just means rested means a cessation of all his creative activity. As we move through the rest of chapter 2, we dial in on the sixth day of creation. And that focus is on the special creation of mankind. Let's look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. 
when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Stop there. That is the very picture of intimacy, isn't it? God commanded everything else into existence. The light, the heavens, the dry land, plants, heavenly bodies, the fish, the bird, land animals. Let it be, and it was. But when he created man, he used previously created material, common dust from the ground, and he shaped it into a man. And then he breathed his own breath into him. Man is a wonderfully mysterious combination of common dust and divine breath. More importantly, this picture is God using his hands to form the man, his lips to breathe the breath of life into his nostrils. Now, whether this is anthropomorphic language, assigning human attributes to God so we can kind of picture this, or whether this is a theophany. This shows direct hands-on involvement. This shows God's intimacy with the only creature that he fashioned in his own image, mankind. He used his hands. He used his lips. It's important to notice that God started Making his special creation, he started with the XY chromosome, human, the man, the male. He made man first, bringing him into existence before the woman. He could have brought them into existence together at the same time, but he didn't. He chose to create them one at a time, and he chose Adam to be first, and then Eve. Why? Listen, there's a reason. It's not a coincidence. It's not arbitrary at all. This is by design. You say, prove it. Okay. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul considers this order, man first and then woman, he considers this order of special creation significant when it comes to male leadership in the church. He tells Timothy when it comes to the church, 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice, he's gone all the way back to the beginning. That's his reason. This isn't Paul speaking from the perspective of a patriarchal, male-dominated culture. He has transcended all cultures all times, all generations, going all the way back to a time before any culture existed at all when there was only one man on the earth. By God's design, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Because she was second on the scene, not first. For that reason, she can't teach or exercise authority over men in the church. That's Paul's argument. As we go back to the text in Genesis chapter 2, we find out, why? Doesn't have to do with male superiority, female inferiority. Doesn't have to do with any of that kind of nonsense that I've heard before. 
We already said men and women are co-equals in the most fundamental way as fellow image bearers of God himself. It doesn't have anything to do with female gullibility and male logic. Of all the heretics listed in the Bible, you're going to find it hard to find a woman named among all the male heretics. Listen, this has nothing to do with that. It has to do, everything to do, with God's design. A God-ordained distinction in role, in responsibility. These co-regents, they work together as a team. One leads, one follows. As we keep reading, notice how many firsts are here how many firsts Adam experienced before God created Eve, all of them equipping him to lead his wife well. Look at verses 8 to 14. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided, divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, modern-day Ethiopia, that area. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So right after God created Adam, he took the newly formed man on a tour of the created world. Adam was the first to get a lay of the land, the first to walk through his environment. Adam saw trees that were pleasing to look at, good for food. Tree of life was in that category. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not. Adam saw the irrigation system for the Garden of Eden. He figured out how things worked. Adam was the first to explore, follow the rivers from their headwaters in the garden to their end. He was the earth's first cartographer, naming the rivers, mapping out natural boundaries. Along the way, Adam discovered natural resources, which made him the world's first, maybe you could call him an engineer, mining engineer. He identified minerals that could be mined from the earth, put to practical use. All of this before Eve existed. Let's keep moving. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Here Adam is the first to get his work assignments directly from God. According to Genesis 1.28, both of them were to, fulfill, to fill the earth, to subdue it. But it was, God was specific with Adam before the woman arrived. There's more to see, verses 16 and 17. And this is where we see a distinctive of Adam's leadership role and responsibility that comes into sharper focus. It says there in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam's like, wait a second, what was that? Die? Things just get gravely serious for him. Adam just heard a very alien concept from God. Something utterly foreign in this good garden, in this living paradise. Words like evil, words like death. And once again, though, it's Adam who received permission about all that's good. 
about all that God has provided for food apart from the presence of the woman. It's to Adam God identified the forbidden tree. It's to Adam who heard the warning not to eat from that tree. The woman has not yet been created. It's Adam who learns about the consequence of eating from the forbidden tree that he would surely die. Again, all of this before Eve is created, she wasn't around to hear one word. Let's cut to the chase. Get to the bottom line significance of all this. Any confusion about God's intent for Adam is removed by verses 16 and 17. God designed Adam to show love and affection for his wife by leading her and by teaching her. Biblical manhood is all about being a leader and a teacher. Let me show you that. As we've seen, God created Adam first and then he immediately took him on the creation tour, okay? God introduced Adam to the environment. He showed him around the gardens, situated him geographically. He oriented the garden that he was in to the surrounding country. God gave Adam his work assignment. By the way, notice that work was created before the fall, not after. Toil, sweat of your brow kind of work. That's the result of sin. But work is God-given. And work, therefore, is very good. Just as God did for Adam, showing him all those things, leading him through all that territory, guiding him, teaching him, instructing him, showing him, revealing. God expected Adam to do the same for his wife. God designed, even trained him for that. Hardwired Adam to think like that. Adam was to be Eve's tour guide. And that would create a very special bond of intimacy between these two. But let's suppose for a moment, Adam didn't catch the significance of all that just by going on the tour. We might be able to forgive Adam for missing the point. After all, first few hours on earth, just learning it all, kind of heads maybe swimming. We can understand if he tried to let her discover things on her own, develop as her own person, be the modern woman, dependent on no man, you know, wear a pantsuit and all that kind of stuff. But God didn't allow that, did he? Not for a moment. What he revealed to Adam in verses 16 and 17 up the ante. Now it's serious. Those verses contain important information about danger. A mortal threat in the midst of an otherwise safe and peaceful paradise. For Adam to fail to pass on that bit of vital information, not only would it be unloving, it would be an unthinkable, unforgivable dereliction of duty. Adam held the key of life and death. Of course he'd want to pass that on to his wife. He'd be of no other mind about it. Likely would have been the first thing he told her. Forget about Eve becoming an independent, free-thinking, self-made woman. All that is nonsense. Without that key bit of information, Eve would be in mortal danger. See what God has done here? Even before creating Eve, God has given Adam a bit of a shove, a nudge, pushing him into the role for which he was designed, giving him the impetus to do what God intended him to do, namely, to teach his wife, to lead her, to guide her, to make sure she has the proper exposure, proper instruction, all the information. Again, there's almost nothing as intimate as the relationship between teacher and student, 
Almost nothing that compares to imparting knowledge, communicating ideas within the worldview of truth. Almost nothing that compares to that, informing and forging a bond of love and appreciation, develop mutual respect and gratitude. And that's what God intended, to bring this first couple together in an intimate relationship. Especially when life and death is on the line. For those of you who served in the military, you understand this. You go into hostile Indian country when, when death is on the line. And those people who teach you, those people who show you how to survive, you're all ears. And you appreciate them so much when the bullets start flying. Now it's after all that. Adam rises from the, with the dust, or from the dust, he's got the breath of God in his lungs. He takes the creation tour, receives his work assignments. He receives vital information. He gets this life and death warning. It's at this point we come to the creation of the woman. And only at this point, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is the first not good thing in God's perfect world. No woman. Can I get an amen on that? Can you imagine what this world would be like without the women? For one thing, it would be empty. <laughs> but continuing, verse 18, God had it all worked out. He says, I will make him a helper, fit for him. God created and designed Eve to be Adam's helper, his help meet. That's her role. That's her design. She's hardwired to submit to him. He's, she's hardwired to be his help meet. Inasmuch as God designed Adam to be the leader, made him perfectly for that task, he designed Eve to be the helpmate. Woman is not to be the leader. That's not her role. The woman is to be the position of a follower, the one who practices biblical submission, which is an active submission, a wise submission, useful to the leader. You see submission all through society. Many of you men submit, and many of you men are in positions where you need others to submit. And when you have people who submit to you well, you know how much can be accomplished. When you submit well to your leadership, you understand how useful that is to your leader. Same thing here. Submission, biblically, it's not walk on me, I'm a doormat. That's not submission. That's a perversion. Submission here is to be helpful, and it's so helpful, especially in the realm of counsel, in informing wise leadership. Foolish is the man who never seeks or ignores or stifles his wife's input and counsel. That means her submission to her husband is to be useful. It's to be wise. It's to be well thought through. It's to be thoughtful, insightful. Where is she going to get the information she needs to be wise, thoughtful, useful to her husband. That's right. She, after all, has been joined to a teacher, you. She's one with a leader, one with her guide, her instructor. That man is there to love her, to equip her to be a useful helpmate so that she'll provide wise submission that informs his leadership and makes it effective and useful. This is to be a reciprocating relationship providing mutual benefit, resulting in the two of them growing so close together as wise co-regents over the whole created world. 
It's a relationship bound together by love, by mutual appreciation, by mutual respect. Now, just before God rectified this massive indeficiency, this massive problem of no woman on the earth, God gave Adam one more job to do. Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever a man called or whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Naming was an act of authority. And God gets Adam involved right away in exercising his authority for the purpose of caring for creation, for caring for its creatures. And so Adam exercises his authority and he gives names to all the animals. And no doubt, as he got acquainted with the animal kingdom, he made a very simple but very important observation. Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant. Mr. Lion, Mrs. Lion. Mr. Mouse, Mrs. Mouse. End of verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God didn't want Adam just to start exercising dominion and naming the animals. That was part of it. God wanted Adam to recognize his need. God wanted Adam to come to the conclusion that he lacked, to come to the conclusion that he was incomplete. And he wanted him to come to that conclusion all on his own. God could have simply told him, Adam, (laughs) you need a woman. (laughs) He didn't do that though. He discipled him through this. He, he brought him, as it were, into his thinking through the process of discovery. And by experience, through doing what God designed him to do, Adam came to know and understand God's will. It's a pretty useful lesson for men who would lead and teach their wives, right? Discipleship. Let's take a look at verse 21 just quickly. God designs Adam's perfect helpmeet. Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh, its, flesh or, uh, its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God formed man from the dust, but he fashioned Eve from the rib of the man. Eve is the crowning jewel of mankind, the pinnacle of beauty and refinement. Again, an amen, right? Are our wives not our betters? Our better half, (laughs) amazingly, removing a rib is nothing more than an outpatient surgery. (laughs) That's how God does it, right? When Adam wakes up, he recognizes immediately what God has done. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. (laughs) After looking, at animals all day. Boy, is Adam ready to meet this girl. He is really excited, as you might imagine, and he gets right to work in naming her too. Again, he indicates his authority over his wife, his authority over the woman. It shows the appropriate exercise of his headship over his wife. It's not a tyrannical, dictatorial, ham-fisted exercise of authority. In this, he's rejoicing over her. Adam is so appreciative of his wife. He's so sincerely respectful, and he is quick 
to acknowledge here the close correspondence between the two of them. He's, he's seeing the complementary nature of this relationship. There's an intimate communion here between the two of them. And so he embeds a reminder of their intimacy in her very name. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. And that's why, incidentally, verses 24 to 25, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They came from one flesh, they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. When God finally brought Eve on the scene, and remember, it's all happening within the space of that sixth day, very busy day. But when Eve arrives, Adam's role is already clearly defined and established. His position firmly established. Just to review, God designed Adam with the ability to lead his wife. Adam had no innate lack of ability. God put Adam in the position of leadership. He not only made him with the ability, but he put him in the position, creating him first, putting him there before Eve, exposing him to the world, giving him a head start on learning. God gave Adam the impetus to lead, the motivation. He had some vital information that he would have felt compelled to communicate to his wife. He was motivated to teach and to, leave, uh, to lead out of love for his wife. God then trained Adam to lead, getting him started in the right use of his authority and his leadership. He discipled him in that way, and Adam would then take that pattern to his wife. So when Eve opened her eyes for the first time, she immediately looked to Adam as her leader, looked to him as her guide, her teacher, her authority. There's no insecurity on her part. There's no laziness on his part. Just naturally fall into their God-given roles. No conflicts, perfect harmony. As Eve asks questions about the world that she's entered into, Adam is there to provide all the answers for her. He knows the lay of the land. He'll show her around. He'll teach her about her purpose, her work. He'll warn her about the danger of the tree over there and the knowledge of good and evil. He'll teach her all the names of all the animals. He'll expose her to everything. Adam is Eve's leader. He's her head. He's her authority. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. These role distinctions in marriage reflect the role distinctions in the triune God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equality of essence, complementarity in the distinction of their roles. Adam needed to love his wife by embracing his role, performing his God-given responsibility to her with diligence and excellence. He's designed to love his wife by teaching her, by leading her, guiding her, caring for her. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Adam was designed to love his wife as his own body. By loving his wife, he loved himself. Well, we know where we've come from now, going back to Genesis chapter 2. We've already taken stock of where we are now in our time. Each of us is at varying degrees of faithfulness or unfaithfulness in fulfilling our God-given, God-ordained role as a biblical man. Here's where all this gets challenging, isn't it? It's one thing to look at the blueprints. It's quite another to know how to build a life of biblical manhood. What we need to know is how do we move forward? 
How do we go from where we are right now to take that first step? And then the second. And that's point three for this evening. God has called us to embrace our calling. Number three, God has called us to embrace our calling. Again, this isn't so much about what you do as what you believe. This is about what you understand, what you embrace. We all know what happened next after Genesis chapter two, that Adam and Eve fell. God had set Adam up for success. He gave him everything. And then Adam turned around and fell flat on his face. He's running with the ball toward the goal line and at the five yard line, boop, there goes the ball. Adam failed. And what's so interesting about this is that the tempter tempted Eve. He deceived Eve. We read earlier from 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. Now I'm gonna include verse 14. I'm gonna read that passage again. Paul says there, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, when Satan attacked this happy couple, he was wily. He was crafty, very shrewd. He chose the more vulnerable of the two. He chose the more susceptible to temptation. Satan chose the one who was created second, not first, because he knew she was one step further removed from those original commands. Therefore, it'd be a little bit easier to deceive her about what really happened between Adam and God before she was ever on the scene. Of the two, the devil had a much better chance of convincing Eve that God didn't have her best interest in mind. But Adam, he wasn't deceived, was he? Gave in to his wife, yeah, he did. She's very persuasive, as our wives can tend to be. He wasn't deceived though. He just walked headlong into sin. He knew what God had called him to do what God designed him to do, what God trained him to do, but he didn't do it. He just went along with it. Just chose the easy route. He followed his wife's lead rather than confront, confronting the conflict that faced him. He chose to go along with this conspiracy that had formed between Satan and his wife. He just went along for the ride. Listen up, gents. When we're silent, when we're lazy, when we fail to lead, when we refuse to communicate or when we communicate sinfully, impatiently, or critically with our wives and families, when we sit back, let others do while we watch, or even worse, when we criticize and quarterback from the armchair, we're good at that, when we invest our time and our energy and our attention in self-centered pursuits rather than giving of ourselves sacrificially, generously to the home and to the church, when we elevate our responsibility to provide and protect our families over our responsibility to love and to teach them and to guide them, lead them, when we're guilty of those sins or other forms of dereliction of our duty, we are following our father, Adam. Men, that is sinful. That is failure. Even if you're putting a roof over the head and food on the table, that's failure. Even if you never yell and you never raise a hand in anger, that's failure. God has called us to loving leadership, 
to live according to our original design. Leadership is a function of credibility. And our credibility as leaders depends on our continuing growth and skillful exercise of two things, character and competency. Growth in godly character, growth in biblical competency. God has given you all the resources you need to grow in both character and competency. If you're a Christian, then you have within you a new nature. You've got a heart to receive his word. You have access to his word. God has also given sound biblical churches, led and instructed by godly leadership, Ephesians 4.11, who equip you, verse 12, to do the work of the ministry. We've got two faithful men who will be doing more of that equipping work tomorrow, teaching us, instructing us. So informed by the church's teaching ministry, you have a Bible written in your own language, there for you. So read it, study it, obey it. Pray and God, ask God to help you. I realize we have, all of us have, myself included, we have been severely diminished by the fall. Adam was created in the image of God, but that image, though not entirely lost, it was irretrievably, irreparably damaged in mankind. And so when Adam fathered children, Genesis 5, 3, they came out looking like him, looking like dad. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image, he named him Seth. All those in Adam are doomed to follow Adam, to fail in the exact same ways. And that is what we're seeing displayed all around us. It's what we've seen displayed ever since Genesis 3. Same thing. But I'm here to tell you some really, really good news. If you're a Christian, you're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 45 and following, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. Second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's that? Jesus Christ, right? If you're in Christ, you bear his image. You possess a new nature which has been restored to its original capacity for glorifying God. Ephesians 4.24 says the new, new nature is, quote, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Man, that's us. Better than that, in Christ there is total and complete fulfillment of God's design for manhood. Was there any better leader than Jesus Christ? Any better teacher than our Lord? Listen, Christ accomplished all that Adam failed to do fulfilled everything. So don't go out from here and read a bunch of leadership books or try to speed walk your way into faithful leadership. If you want to grow in character and competency, if you want to grow into your God-ordained role as a leader, here's what you do. Study Jesus Christ. Worship him and God will conform you to his image. There's no shortcutting the time it takes to mature as a leader. Effective leadership teaching, the essence of biblical manhood. It requires time and experience to grow in that character and competency, so don't hurry it. 
Just put one foot in front of the other. Study, admire, worship Jesus Christ, obey his commands, and God, by the Spirit, he will conform you to his perfect image. It will happen. Trust him. I want to close with this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can look over there if you'd like to, 2 Timothy 1. Something that Paul the elder taught the young and growing leader Timothy in his pastoral leadership. He wrote this in 2 Timothy 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Listen, faithful men, here they're pictured as soldiers, athletes, farmers, what do all those men have in common? They're only worthy of admiration. They're only worthy of emulation, following their example, if they're diligent and focused on their tasks like good soldiers. If they compete according to God's rules like a victorious athlete. If they're, if they're working hard at their tasks, staying at it every single day like a hardworking farmer. We don't need to go out and study soldiers, athletes, and farmers and find out all their techniques those are just illustrations. The point is there in verse 7. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Gentlemen, this is biblical manhood. Study Jesus Christ. You will become the man that God designed you to be from the very beginning. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves um, humbled by your word, convicted. Um, actually, in some cases, we feel flayed open with the spotlight of your word shining on our hearts and revealing our inadequacies. And yet, uh, we, I mean, we would be completely discouraged and undone if it weren't for the fact that you have saved us by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of him that all our sins are forgiven, completely paid for, atoned for on the cross. It's because of Jesus Christ fulfilling all your law, doing what Adam failed to do, shortcutted by his sin, failure. It's because of his fulfilling the law that we stand perfect in your righteousness, fully accepted by you. So we pray as you reorient us this weekend toward biblical manhood that we would embrace the challenge once again and that you would encourage our hearts in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the men that you designed us to be. Help us, Lord, not to look around at one another, not to look around at human examples, but look at the Lord Jesus Christ. We can follow human examples as long as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be discerning men, judicial in what we follow, what we don't follow. Help us to be discerning, help us to be wise and help us to be diligent. We have such a desire to sit back and relax after a hard day's work, after 12, 14, 16 hour days. We just don't want to lift a finger anymore, but help us, Lord, to strengthen the weak knees and the feeble hands. Help us to throw ourselves into the work 
and to be the man that you've called us to be, first in our families, in our homes, and then in the church. Help us to give ourselves to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you for the time to reflect on these matters. We just ask that our conversation would be pleasing to you, uplifting, encouraging, and you'd build the fellowship that we're trying to build here, Lord. We believe that it's you who are designing this, organizing this, bringing this together. Just guide us and direct us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.